welcome everybody to the latest edition of Media Sandwich, a podcast where a guy who's trapped in his recliner all day watching movies and reading and and playing video games uh, talks to you about what's going on in the world of entertainment. And uh, I'm that guy. My name's Kyle Martinak. And follow me on this trail of weird headlines and stuff that's going on lately uh since the last time i talked to you uh (laughs) it's been a real one folks it's been a real week let's get into the the meat of this week uh with the video games the video game headlines and arguably this first piece of news should go at the show the end of the show's cycle in the tv category But let's face it, this is more of a reflection of the video game industry than it is the television industry. Uh, The headline being G4 TV, uh, formerly the cable channel catered to gamers and tech junkies from uh, 2002 to 2013 when it was shuttered, uh, was revived by Comcast, first as an online outlet in 2020 to test out programming material for a 2021 relaunch as a full-fledged cable network now in 2022 comcast has pulled the plug yet again citing that g4 was not able to sustain itself financially due to a lack of viewership uh yeah the new version of g4 brought back a lot of the original version's most popular content including attack of the show and x-play uh those hallowed programs but it was also integrating a hybrid construct with a lot of online streaming content and partnerships with popular Twitch and YouTube personalities. Among them, one that I'm a fan of, one Gerard Khalil, a.k.a. The Completionist. Uh, Check out his channel. He's awesome. But yeah, it was very abrupt, this this killing of G4, killing of a sacred cable network. Uh, (laughs) It was very abrupt. The the chairman and CEO of Comcast's... uh, sports and esports division one dave scott sent out a memo just this last saturday a saturday memo bro all right announcing that they were ceasing operations effective immediately uh (laughs) that's a really shitty and tactless way to tell at least a couple dozen people that they're fired effective immediately and and to tell quite a few others that their projects and partnerships are all kaputzville Uh, I read a tweet from somebody connected to the G4 production offices who said a lot of people are finding out that they're fired from a deadline article. Uh, wow. Yeah. You stay classy, Comcast, you fucking finks. Anyway, G4 return. G4's return was kind of a mixed bag as a concept, honestly, since the channel went away in 2013. Esports has absolutely exploded as a business, And thanks to Twitch, there's been a real revolution in how video games are consumed by spectators, by third parties watching somebody else play. So it makes sense on paper, totally, for the old guard running the big cable conglomerate to say, hey, why don't we have a toehold in this facet of media? It it looks like a gold mine. Uh, It is. And and hey, you can't let Amazon and Google have all the fun, can you? Uh, The... The joke back during the last few sad years of G4's existence as the old version cable network was that they had so little gamer-related content that two-thirds of their programming schedule was reruns of Cops 
in a truly vile reality TV show called Cheaters. Uh, I don't know if you remember that or if you're too young to, to remember any of that, but true story, I once got super drunk and watched Attack of the Show, then mistakenly sat through an episode of Cheaters, and I felt my soul leave my body for a few minutes, and my soul went and had a cigarette, and then my soul went around the corner and bought a hot dog at the Circle K, and then went to the local pub and shot a great game of pool. My soul was avoiding coming home to face the music of being near my body after watching an episode of Cheaters. Uh, really, really disgusting shit. So, you know, 2021, a far better time to generate gamer-specific content than 2013 was. There's so much more you can do now to avoid filling your content block with trash. But here's the thing. Another tweet that I saw in relation to this story. A young person stating, I don't even know what any of this is about. What is G4? I've never heard of it. And that makes perfect sense when you realize the average 20-year-old gamer right now was 11 when G4 went off the air, and they were about 5 when G4 actually had any relevance in the gaming community. And, of course, being a 20-year-old, they don't have a cable package, because why would they? Um, it's one thing to revive the brand and, and the shows, but to do it on cable... It's kind of like trying to bring back MySpace and AOL Instant Messenger at this point. There's no real reason for it to exist anymore. We're past it as a species. Uh, the main reason G G4 had such trouble filling out their schedule back then was because there wasn't enough material. Now, there's so much content, so much gamer-specific material being generated all over the world at all times, and democratized to a point that everyone has a channel of their own, and all of it is catered so specifically to whatever topic or audience or game franchise or, or you know, eSport, however the hell, you know, you want to consume uh, video games as, as a third-party spectator or, you know, or playing them on your own stream, how the hell do you try to compress so much of that into something as small as a 24-hour broadcast that only goes out to people still shelling out like $100 or more for a cable package? I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it as a decision to, to bring it back in that way, shape, or form. The obvious choice would be to just jump into eSports with both feet and make that the entire brand for G4. Bring back the G4 name and focus tightly on making yours the only cable network focused on eSports. And that's not what they did. They wanted to diversify. They wanted to survive off of the goodwill for the old classics. Um, all two of them. Attack of the Show and X-Play. Imagine, if you will... VH1 had folded back in like 2006 and then they brought it back today in 2022 and the two things they decided to bring back were like behind the music and then the I love the 70s 80s 90s uh nostalgia bait blocks where they just like bring on famous people as talking heads to talk about things they remember from that decade uh except hey except hey that analogy really doesn't hold water because those programs got millions more views than anything G4 ever had on its best day 15 years ago. Uh, <laughs> millions more. The people who pay for cable in 2022, they're not watching eSports. Most of them. Most of them don't know what eSports really is, I'd wager. 
the majority of people paying for cable right now do so for traditional sports broadcasts that they can't get online or for premium prestige TV and movie channels like HBO that they don't want to pay for a streaming subscription for. Uh, that's just the way it is. That's, that's what cable is as a model. Video games belong to the internet, and Comcast was quite silly to think that they could reverse that a good decade too late. They are, they are so far behind on the idea of reviving G4 at this point, it's laughable. But anyway, brief pause for, from the serious news for another fun little video game curio. Remember last week we had a fun curio about Doom being played on various ridiculous devices and apps? Well, if you remember uh, the season eight episode of The Simpsons titled The Springfield Files from, uh, I believe, 1997, uh, and, and why wouldn't you remember this episode? It was a crossover with The X-Files where Homer sees an alien in the woods and Mulder and Scully come to, to Springfield to investigate. I just happened to watch this one the other day, actually. I'm doing a big rewatch on Disney Plus, and it's such a great episode. It has a terrific joke in the arcade where Millhouse pumps 40 quarters into a cabinet machine for Kevin Costner's Waterworld. As Kevin Costner, Millhouse moves the joystick, takes two steps, and gets an immediate game over screen, calls the game a total ripoff, and then starts methodically pumping quarters into it again. It's a 20-second joke, and it's a good joke. Uh, made me laugh the other day before I even read this news item. News item is an indie game developer and Twitch streamer, Macaw45 is their handle, decided, hey, that's my next project. <laughs> this person put together a full imagining of the Waterworld game as a freeware PC game. That's fun. It's, it's a full game with bosses to defeat, secrets to find, the whole schmear. Uh, it's a very fun idea, but it becomes genuinely brilliant when you add this detail. You have to load 40 digital quarters into the uh, cabinet game in order to play the game. You have to actually like click on the quarter and put it in the slot and you have to do that 40 times. And it and and every time you die, it demands 40 more quarters, which you have to go back and load in manually. And as you're doing it, uh, the game pulls back and reveals that you are Millhouse pumping those quarters in, which is hilarious and kind of sad. And and the game keeps track of how much fake money you have to spend in order to make it to the end of the game. That's brilliant. That is uh, terrific. That's I'm impressed with how clever that detail is. Uh, that game is available for download right now from Macaw45's site. Check that one out as well as the uh, the fully playable version of Lee Carvalho's Putting Challenge, which someone else made into a game earlier this year. You game developers, you're so weird and perceptive about the staying power of a Simpsons joke. Um, I thought that was fun. Um, next small item. This isn't really a video game, actually. It's a tabletop game news item that fits in here i'm putting it, i'm putting it in here it's gaming um magpie games is a company that launched a kickstarter for a tabletop rpg called avatar legends set in the world of avatar the last airbender and the legend of korra and that kickstarter met its goal 
in about 16 minutes. That's not an exaggeration for comedic effect. It's just such a no-brainer that everyone would want to play this game. I, I love Avatar The Last Airbender. M many other people do. And those people happen to be the exact audience for a tabletop RPG. So, yeah, the game's available for pre-order right now. And it uses the Powered by the Apocalypse framework designed by... Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher names here. I'm sorry, McGuay Baker and uh, Vincent Baker. I hope that's I'm I'm probably not in the ballpark. McGuay Baker. I'm sorry, um, but if you never played a game using that particular engine, if you will, uh, it's focused on collaborative storytelling first and foremost, rather than like uh, combat mechanics. Very much the way like uh, Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition is much more character and story-based than 4th edition, which was quite a bit more mechanical and stats and combat-driven. So basically, uh, your dice rolls determine how well your attempt to do something shakes out. You can get like a fully successful result, a partially successful result, a partial failure, a total failure, but all results have effects or consequences attached to them. So if you try to do something, it might end up making your situation worse. It might have unintended trickle-down uh, consequences for other players or for NPCs. It's it's a really interesting uh, uh, game engine. Uh, I like it. It's, it's one that I'm interested in. And of course, the Avatar universe is just such a terrific setting for a tabletop RPG. It's, it's so inherently character focused it spans centuries of conflict and developing technology and political history so it has tons of uh material that you can draw from to build a story and and tons of variations that you can focus on for character builds uh there are going to be five eras of that universe that you can run a campaign in based on uh which uh avatar of that time period there was so if you're familiar with avatar uh there's the kiyoshi period where kiyoshi was the avatar there's the roku period where avatar roku was ruling the roost on the back of his big old dragon uh there's the hundred year war where ang was frozen in uh the block of ice and there was no avatar and then there's the ang era where ang and, and his gang were fighting the the fire lord and then there's the Korra era. So you can run the game in any one of those time periods. And there are also character classes called trainings. And you can focus your character on any of the four elements. Or you can be a non-bender and focus on weapons or technology. That's really awesome. Um, what's really cool is that Magpie worked with the creators of the two animated series to create some new canon for the game, particularly in the Roku era, which, until now, very little was kind of known about that uh, part of the canon. Uh, the game, like I said, is available for pre-order, both as a $25 PDF version or a $50 hardcover. And I gotta say, based on the photos I'm looking at right now, get the hardcover. Shell out the extra dough. It looks gorgeous. There's tons of artwork that comes with it. I, If you're a fan of the franchise, you gotta do it. Uh, I hope to play that one really soon but hey kind of a packed video game section this week but there's one big headline in the world of video games this week 
and it's not a nice one, and I'm sorry to say that, uh, Bayonetta 3 is coming out real soon on October 28, and it's been a really puzzling thing for diehard fans of that franchise to see the original voice actor, the voice of Bayonetta herself, Helena Taylor, sitting this one out. Um, the character is instead going to be voiced by arguably a much better known kind of marquee voice actor, Jennifer Hale, who Jennifer Hale has done voices through, you know, all over the video game landscape. She was in Mass Effect. She was in, I mean, tons of other things. Look up Jennifer Hale if you really want to. But this week, uh, Helena Taylor finally lifted the shades on what happened there. Apparently, after being credited as the character for the first two games, as well as for Super Smash Brothers for the 3DS and the Wii U, she was asked to audition to play the role again for Bayonetta 3. That's pretty insulting from an actor's point of view. But way more insulting was the initial payment offer, so insulting that she ended up writing the series creator, and she received a note back with some lovely words about how it was a dream hearing Bayonetta come out of her her mouth, uh, and there was a revised financial offer. Now, Taylor did not specify what that initial offer was, but this revised counteroffer was a whopping $4,000. That's what they went up to, $4,000. That's Platinum Games sweetening the deal. Whew. Now, Taylor is really in a bad situation here because she's probably violating her non-disclosure agreement in revealing all of this via her Twitter account, along with asking fans to boycott the game and donate to charity instead. But she went further to say that she's in a bad enough financial position that she's having trouble keeping her car running, and essentially she gave us the Rocky Five line. You don't remember Rocky Five? Very end of the movie, guy says to Rocky, hey, if you hit me, I'll sue. I'll sue ya. Rocky punches the guy in the face and says, sue me for what? And that's where Helena Taylor is right now. She's like, what are you going to do? What are you What are you going to take from me? I don't have anything that you can sue me for. Um, that sucks. That's really heartbreaking to hear. And now a lot of fans are pointing out that last week there was a big uproar regarding one Chris Pratt getting paid literal millions of dollars to half-ass a performance voicing Mario, Nintendo's favorite son, while Game Series mainstay as the voice of Mario, Charles Martinet, wasn't even considered for the movie after years of voicing the character and probably being paid less to do so than I'm paid for my day job, which I'm here to tell you, not a whole bunch. Um... Yeah, the video game industry is not good to voice actors, I think is the takeaway. I've heard tell that the Fire Emblem series has a bad habit of replacing union talent with non-union voice actors as well. There's really a culture of these folks being treated like they're partially paid volunteers in order to, you know, like, the, the reward is you get to be the voice of this iconic character. But no, that's what money's for. You need to pay a professional vocal performer for their talent. And if you're paying somebody who's not talented, you should pay somebody who is talented. Uh, yeah, on AAA titles, not just on indie games, that this is the the norm. And it's, well, to put it in a single word, it's horseshit. Um, after months and months of time and money and work, from hundreds of people all getting paid a damn sight more than $4,000, 
to develop it, this game is about to become the most pirated game of the year thanks to this news. So, awesome. All because you decided to shaft one of the biggest public faces of the franchise. Great job. No notes. Way to go, Platinum Games, you morons. Um, that's finally it for video games, and that brings us to movies. Uh, first things first, Halloween Ends took the number one slot at the box office this last weekend, but with a rather disappointing, like, $41 million weekend. Uh, it was projected to go, like, 43 44 and it kind of dipped, it ended up dipping down to 41 I think, last I saw. And that's measurably less than Halloween Kills did last year, and far less than Halloween 2018, uh, which I jokingly refer to as H4O. <laughs> um, the diminishing returns on that franchise, likely due to the public reaction to the new reboot trilogy getting more and more, let's say, strange with its choices. Um, H4O, as I call it, pretty well received by critics and audiences, um, whereas Halloween Kills last year was very polarizing due to what I called a muddled tone and a lot of scatterbrained themes and ideas that didn't quite go together and form a cohesive movie. Halloween ends, as it turns out, bold strategy, Cotton. It leans even further into David Gordon Green's decision to focus less and less on Michael Myers and Laurie Strode and more on Haddonfield, Illinois, as such a shitty place to live that the town and its citizens are collectively the real villain of the franchise. Uh, now, that's my theory on why the box office numbers came down. I think that it's just people are people are really like not into this angle that the movies have taken. But if you ask some other folks, including Christopher Landon, the director of 2020's slasher comedy Freaky, uh, if you don't remember that one, that's uh, Vince Vaughn as a uh, uh, twisted serial killer who ends up in a uh, body swap comedy situation with a teenage girl. Uh, gr great movie, honestly. I liked Freaky. But if you ask Christopher Landon, the director of Freaky, the main problem with this box office issue with Halloween uh, is the same day streaming release strategy that has become all the rage since the glory days of COVID-19. Both Halloween Kills and Ends were available to stream on Peacock Premium the same day they released in cinemas. Now, Landon is insistent that that same strategy decimated Freaky's box office potential uh, the year before, in 2020. And while I don't disagree with him that the same day release thing is just a really bad business practice at this point, and it is affecting bo the box office as a whole, I do agree, his movie came out in November of 2020. No one was going to the movie theater to breathe in COVID fumes to see Freaky. Uh, I liked Freaky. I thought it was a really damn fun movie, but come on, man. Not for nothing. Halloween Kills actually did pretty decent in movie theaters considering that same day release and the fact that the pandemic was still totally happening in October of 2021. Granted, I think it's taken a full year for people to really grasp the existence of Peacock in general as well, and that might mean more people watched Halloween Ends on there than they did Halloween Kills. But anyway, I'm certainly glad I didn't see either Halloween sequel in the theater. Those were both Peacock watches for me big time, and I don't regret it. Uh, check out my review of Halloween Ends on media-sandwich.com for a whole lot more of my opinion on that one. It was like 1,300 words. 
Uh, I got really, really in-depth on why I felt it didn't really work. But, anywho, let's talk about a different possible legacy sequel. Who knows? Maybe. Um, Tyler Perry has been developing, over at Disney+, Plus a Sister Act 3 movie. Uh, it's been quite a while since the second Sister Act movie. That was, like, what, the mid to late 90s? Uh, but I remember when the first movie took the world by storm. It really did. It was one of the biggest things on the planet, movie-wise, at least in the circles I was traveling in 1992. Um, <laughs> I, I was four. But uh, Whoopi Goldberg was already a huge household name at that point. She had won an Oscar already for Ghost. She was very celebrated for her role in The Color Purple. But Sister Act was the moment when she became, like, a superstar. An iconic superstar. She headlined what felt like ten movies over the course of the next five years after that one. Um, so naturally, this third movie would not be happening without her as the face of it, kind of shepherding it into existence. And lately, she's been very public about who she wants to be in it. Uh, the Whoopster has traded uh, lots of affirming words with Kiki Palmer to star. Kiki Palmer herself has been quite openly campaigning for a role in this movie. She feels very much like she was born to be the lead of a Sister Act uh, legacy sequel, and, and honestly, rightly so. I think that's kind of perfect. Uh, that's a perfect fit for casting right there. Especially if, if you haven't seen Nope, the energy she's putting into that movie, yes, I mean, definitely. That would be so much fun for her to to put on the, the nun habit. But other names mentioned by Whoopi are Lizzo. Also, pretty damn smart casting right there. Imagine if Lizzo shows up, you know, sings a couple of numbers, does some, some fun jokes back and forth with Kiki Palmer. She could easily break into a really successful acting career with a part in Sister Act 3. It would be a win-win for everybody. Another name mentioned, Nicki Minaj. Although, <laughs> this was kind of funny. Whoopi initially just referred to her as the girl with the chest and couldn't remember her name. And I thought that was kind of funny because Whoopi has essentially become my grandma in terms of identifying current day celebrities. Uh, but hey, one person who might not be coming back from the original cast is Kathy Najimy. Um, she went on The View recently to promote Hocus Pocus 2 and she brought up Sister Act 3 and Whoopi got real tight about it. She was just like, yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's happening. We're, uh, we're waiting on a script and it is rolling and did not elaborate any further. It was really, really awkward. She said absolutely nothing about Najimi coming back. She's had, uh, Tyler Perry on where they talked in depth about, uh, making the movie. Uh, she had another co-star from the original cast on, and she was very, quite adamant, we're doing that movie, you're in that movie, it's happening. But said nothing to Kathy and Jimmy about it. So, I mean, yeah, look, daytime talk show drama, what a what a thing to report on, Kyle. But I'm not sure what's going on there. Maybe Whoopi really didn't like Hocus Pocus 2, who knows? Not I, I don't know. But I'd be down to get nostalgic and enjoy a Sister Act 3. I really must, I must give kudos to the second movie, by the way for having one of the top-tier sequel subtitles of all time. Kids, if you don't remember, you're too young to know what the hell I'm even talking about. 
The Sister Act movies are about Whoopi Goldberg dressing up like a nun and teaching nuns and later inner-city teenagers how to sing. It's a real power of music. Music is the great unifier, kind of feel-good comedy formula. Worked wonders back in the 90s, but the second movie's title is Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. And that's brilliant. That might be better than any of the jokes in either movie, honestly. That subtitle. But yeah, I'm down for that, especially if Kiki Palmer's in it. I like her and, and she'd really kick ass in that. Now next on the docket. Uh, Paramount Pictures are also looking to revive a 90s comedy staple in the form of The Naked Gun. Ha! The cop movie spoof starring Leslie Nielsen are from a long time ago at this point. The third one came out in, like, what, 94, 95, I want to say? I might be totally wrong. Um, but yeah, that took place in a long time ago in a movie theater far, far away where uh, comedies were allowed to be really, really silly. It's a very, very, just so damn silly franchise that the chief thing holding them together was how straight-faced and deadpan Leslie Nielsen played Officer Frank Drebin of Police Squad, uh, they don't make them like this anymore. So it's a real surprise that they're trying to make one like that uh, again. And the big piece of news here is that they're courting Liam Neeson to play the lead, which could either be a completely rebooted Frank Drebin, or I've heard in quite a few spaces that it's uh, likely the character is Frank Drebin's son. Now, my two cents... If you're going to do this, you really need to lean into Liam Neeson's current status as a stone-faced action star. The guy is literally 70 years old, and right now, as of this year, he stars in at least two movies a year where he's shooting a gun and razzling bad guys and being all tough and stuff. I say, the way the original Naked Guns were send-ups of things like Dragnet, or rather, the original Police Squad TV show was a send-up of things like Dragnet. The movies were kind of send-ups of cop mysteries and action blockbusters like the Lethal Weapon movies at the time a little bit. If you do this now with Liam Neeson, you gotta make it a goofball take on the Taken movies, The Commuter, A Walk Among the Tombstones, all of these... Liam Neeson movies where he's like 65, clearly spent the night before the shoot pissing himself drunk, but he's playing the most deadly man on the face of the earth, like an ex-Black Ops assassin who's now a private detective on the ragged edge. They really need to goof around with that. They need to play upon how preposterous it really is that Liam Neeson has an action career at this point. I think that it could work if you do do it that way. Neeson's actually a really funny guy, if given the chance, by the way. Um, now, I read somewhere that Seth MacFarlane was trying to develop this as recently as last year. I'm not sure if he's still involved or not, but it makes sense if he is. He and Liam Neeson worked together on A Million Ways to Die in the West. So, hey, not sure if I like Seth MacFarlane for this or not, but I want to believe Scully. I, I think it could work. Uh, if they if they do it the right way, and if Seth MacFarlane focuses on what made The Naked Gun a fun franchise and not just get up his own ass with his usual brand of shenanigans, um, like if there's a big song and dance number in one of these, uh, you can keep it. Uh, um, anyways, uh, here's a, another happy news item for you. 
Avatar and Korra fans, you got another happy news item. Paramount Animation and Nickelodeon Animation have tapped Flying Bark Productions, an animation studio in Australia, to work on their planned feature film set in the world of Avatar. It'll be a a 2D animated film with a healthy amount of CGI elements in it, which kind of goes without saying these days. And it'll be directed by Lauren Montgomery with the original series creators, uh, Brian Konitsko and Michael DiMartino. Again, names. Sorry, I'm terrible with names. But those guys, the original dudes are producing, which is funny because they left the live action Netflix show and said, you know what? (laughs) You know what? We'll go talk to our friends at Paramount and and Nickelodeon, and we'll just uh, keep the animation train rolling on this franchise. And I think that was a smart move on their point. I'm much more excited about this than I am that show. Per the announcement back at this summer's San Diego Comic-Con, this is supposed to be the first of three planned uh, feature-length movies. And the bit of news that I hadn't heard until now, I'm not sure if it's new news or if this was announced back then, this first one this first one will follow the original Ang gang during the period where they're young adults a period not really explored much in the uh, comics or in the bits of lore told in uh, Legend of Korra so this is exciting it's kind of a new a new period to explore and uh, flying bark has worked on a few big profile projects including they worked on Marvel Studios uh, what if series which was I thought pretty cool And they also worked on Nickelodeon's Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm not sure which version of the Turtles that is at this point, because there's like four of them in the last, you know, decade or so that Nickelodeon has tried. But uh, I don't see in my source article anywhere if they've slated these movies for any uh, particular platform as of yet. But I have to imagine... It'll be a digital rental and purchase for your Amazon or your Vudu or your Apple, and then probably exclusive streaming on Paramount+. Plus. That's my guess. That's kind of what Paramount Plus is for at this point, is stuff like this. So I'm excited. I love Avatar, as, as I mentioned earlier. And the good news just keeps on rolling in for the franchise uh, now, like 15 years on, after the show, the original show ended. That's great. But I'm still very cautious about that Netflix show. I will not give my heart to that just yet. Uh, that's that's it for movies. A uh, couple of development items. Uh, some of them some of them sounding really good. Some of them sounding uh, like they might be good. Uh, mostly mostly positive news going on. But we have uh, we've got some stuff for you in the way of comic books. First thing to talk about. This is just a general question. Is anyone else sick and tired of the whole go woke and go broke catchphrase coming from the social media chuds who stalk the internet looking for things at which to be pissed off? Um, That's a rhetorical question. Of course, everyone's sick and tired of the phrase go woke and go broke or just the use of the word woke in general. Um, So yeah, that phrase, the whole philosophy at play is... Hey, if you make this piece of entertainment woke, i.e. if you write and produce it to include minority and queer characters, point out social inequities, or in general do anything to threaten these friggin' creeps and their sense of ownership over every piece of fiction under the sun, be prepared for it to bomb financially and to be review-bombed on IMDb Rotten Tomatoes. Oh no! Oh no! They're gonna do something drastic, like... 
create a bunch of sock puppet accounts and write one star reviews on fan rating aggregate websites. <laughs> we as a society have been making fun of people who write nasty Yelp reviews for years now. When are we going to get into that mindset for people who do the same thing for movies and TV shows? And remember, this is Mr. Cinema Autopsy talking here. <laughs> I've, I've done my fair share of shameful participation in this thing. I'm here to say that if more people had read my mean movie review essays in the first place, more people would have had the good sense to savagely mock me for it. Um, <laughs> but what the hell am I even talking about all this for? Well, see, uh, Go Woke and Go Broke has recently been brayed at DC Comics lately with the news that Superman Son of Kal-El was coming to an end with the um, upcoming uh, issue number 18. Most notably, some shitrag outlet called Sky News Australia actually posted the following headline, quote, Going woke and broke, colon, DC cancels gay Superman solo run after abysmal sales, end quote. See, because Son of Kal-El stars Superboy, a.k.a. John Kent, the son of Clark Kent, and his series focuses some of its run on John being bisexual and having an ongoing romance with his boyfriend, Jay Nakamura. How dare bisexuals exist in 2022? Um, <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, the writer of Son of Kal-El, uh, one Tom Taylor, took umbrage with that headline. <laughs> <laughs> rightly so first off he happens to be australian himself so that headline i bet found he found particularly shitty coming from his home shores but also he was quick to point out that the pertinent parts of that headline are just plain bullshit uh the series wasn't canceled it's being renamed adventures of superman colon john kent because superboy is taking on the mantle of his father and becoming earth's chief defender he is becoming Superman. So that's less a cancellation than it is kind of an upgrade in terms of titles. Um, but yeah, they're just resetting it, uh, issue number one with a new title. That's it. It's not a cancellation. And as far as abysmal sales go, Taylor uh, did drop the mic on that by pointing out that the number one selling comic on Amazon at the time of that headline happened to be uh, you guessed it, issue number 16 of Son of Kal-El. So, yeah, just another day that ends in Y, right. Uh, I just found I just found the fear and the desperate flailing of the whole thing laughable. Imagine being so threatened by a comic book that you're pointing at the announcement from, from New York Comic Con uh, a week before last that DC totally made this announcement that a book was ending so it could restart at issue at number one with a new title and saying, you see, they canceled the gay book because, uh, because, well, because people don't like it. People weren't buying it. So they made the business decision that just happens to align with my personal tastes and abject terrors. Anyone who follows comic books could tell you that issues number one through four of Son of Kal-El that dropped back in uh, the summer of 2021, they did pretty regular numbers for a new book. Not amazing or astounding numbers, but pretty middle of the pack. They sold out and went for a second printing at least, and the book has steadily increased in sales the way an ongoing story gaining a regular audience might. 
almost like, you know, the main character being bisexual had nothing to do with the sales numbers outside of a very vocal minority of jagoffs who just plain can't handle it. Um, but the book was labeled Woke Superman immediately, and the narrative of bad sales figures has existed since that first issue. Not just on Reddit and whatnot, but on, you know, those websites. You know the ones. They have the word comics in their name, but they largely traffic in bullshit rumors about comic book movies and opinion pieces that are, strictly speaking, doo-doo. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I watched Young Frankenstein over the weekend, and I've been hobbling around the house declaring everything to be cuckoo or doo-doo in order to make my kids laugh. Why? Because that's what I am to them. I'm a clown. I'm here to amuse them. Uh, anyway. Anyway, it's media sandwich policy that the term woke and that the phrase about going broke should be stricken from the English language until we can develop a brain medicine to treat the core issue uh, behind it. But in next in comic book news, Marvel is all prepped to introduce Namor the Submariner, to the non-comic book public next month via his role in Wakanda Forever, and as those movies now dictate what happens in the comic books pretty much completely over on that end, we have a new comic book miniseries from uh, writer Christopher Cantwell and artist uh, Pasquale Ferry centered on the longtime Marvel character to give readers a good study of his personal motives, uh, uh, design a little bit closer to the one in the movie, and maybe even a viable plot for a standalone movie or a show down the line. Now, here's the good news about this Namor the Submariner miniseries. Instead of a reset on the character's origin, this is actually a really interesting take. It's titled Conquered Shores, and it takes place in the future, where the ocean level has risen high enough to destroy most of dry land and render the majority of, uh, you know, land landlubber humans under the dominion of Atlantis. What few superheroes and human civilians are left are regulated to a safe zone called Dry Man's Land, where they scrabble for the few resources allotted to them by the kingdom of Atlantis. Namor is their only advocate, but he's no longer the king. He's been shoved aside. So it's really a great kind of like old man Logan for Namor, uh, centered on what's what's basically a cause and effect cautionary tale, mixing together the climate crisis and the relegation of indigenous people to reservations. Really interesting stuff. Really uh, new new uh, territory that we're that we're going into with a lot of big growth opportunities for the fish man himself as a character. Uh, I think this is really exciting. It's exactly the kind of version of Namor that makes him relevant and fascinating to a modern audience. And that's no mean feat. Not for nothing, Namor has been around since 1939. He's one of the oldest Marvel characters. And there are ones who have run out of steam decades ago who didn't exist until the 60s or the 70s. So... That's impressive. Uh, check out Namor the Submariner, number one. It's now on sale wherever you get your comic books. Uh, sounds really good. So that takes us to TV, and we've got just a couple little things to drop in on for TV. Quick one I found interesting. We talk about box office for movies, and, you know, per, per uh, the godfather himself, Marty Scorsese, uh, you probably shouldn't use box office 
as a uh, measuring stick for how successful a movie is, because box office is kind of bullshit. It's just the method for paying for the movie to be made so that we can enjoy art. But it is a measuring stick that's used. And for TV, we talk about ratings. HBO and Amazon, uh, they started their own little ratings arm race last month by dropping House of the Dragon and Rings of Power at pretty much the same time. Uh, Both prequels to wildly popular fantasy genre franchises, both absurdly expensive, both designed to absolutely dominate viewership and online chatter for weeks at a time. And according to Nielsen, Uh, If you don't know who Nielsen is, uh, that cryptic order of wizards who provide somewhat scientific data on what you've been watching and whatnot, uh, there's a a show that beat the ever-loving crap out of both of them. And that show is Netflix's Cobra Kai. (laughs) Uh, The fifth season of the Karate Kid sequel series dropped around the same time as both of those big epic fantasy programs, And at very least, for the week of September 12th through the 18th, which is the most recent time period measured, Nielsen's ratings are always on kind of a delay like that, don't ask me why, but that's the second straight week uh, that Cobra Cobra Kai totally crane-kicked the living shit out of the two nerd shows in measurement of minutes watched. That's kind of how they're... they're, uh, measuring viewership of streaming shows anymore is minutes watched for that week cobra kai actually came close to beating house of the dragon and rings of powers combined numbers uh the teen karate melodrama hit 1.9 billion minutes watched while the others had 960 and 988 million minutes watched respectively (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it kind of sounds like kind of sounds like power levels in Dragon Ball Z when you when you put it this way with millions of minutes. But hey, of course, what's the chief cause of this? We know. We know Netflix takes a lot of shit for keeping to their their uh, binge release model that made them so famous back in the earliest days of streaming television, but naturally it gives them the advantage in this case when all 10 episodes of Cobra Kai or I think it was 10 episodes Uh, dropped at once while the other two shows are releasing week by week. So during that week, it was 10 episodes of Cobra Kai being binged versus, you know, one or two episodes of the other shows soaking up only as many views as, you know, two hours can. But consider how much Cobra Kai's latest season must have cost. Even with all the flashy new visual effects peppered throughout the season, they did spend some money on it by comparison to earlier seasons. But compare it to how much those two, the most expensive television shows of all time, cost. It's pretty damn funny when most people tuned in to watch 50-something white guys teaching karate to former Nickelodeon cast members. Just a thought, just a playful thought from old Kyle. But hey, but hey, speaking of Netflix, the big headline this week was that they announced a new and enticing price point that they sure hope makes up for how excruciatingly steep they've hiked the price for their top tier membership in the last couple of years. Uh, Beginning November 3rd, in the US at least, uh, Netflix will now offer a subscription called Basic with Ads, which will cost $6.99 a month. 
Hooray! Question mark? My initial response to this news, I tweeted that maybe the Netflix we made was the Hulu we had all along. <laughs> Not for nothing, I've been on Hulu's ad-supported plan for about a decade now, and... Uh, I don't, I think the price point has jumped up maybe a dollar or two. I think it used to be like $5.99 or even $4.99 to start for the first like six months. And now it's up to, I think maybe $7.99 at the most. It's hard for me to tell because I have it bundled with Disney Plus and ESPN Plus at this point. But I don't have a pathological fear of ads whatsoever. I, I think it's a good thing for people who might not want to pay the ridiculous over $20 price for Netflix's top tier, and don't mind the occasional 57th viewing of the same Liberty Mutual insurance commercial within the last hour of their programming. Uh, if said people exist, I'm not sure if they do. Now, the, the big thing that sets this bargain bin Netflix tier that they've announced apart from its more costly brethren is that due to license restrictions, not all of Netflix's library will be available to this tier. That's the real caveat, rather than the ads, in my opinion. They claim about 90 to 95% of the present Netflix library will be available for those with ads, but of course, that doesn't mean much if the missing 5 to 10% includes 8 of the 10 most-watched shows on the platform, possibly, or maybe a hundred or so revolving movie titles at any given time, that's a lot. That's a lot to deal with in terms of missing out. Don't worry, though, if you choose this new exciting tier, you'll still have the same crystal clear standard definition as the $10 tier. That's right, folks, 720p. Who could ask for anything more? Uh, Jesus. If I haven't been clear enough with this, I think this is dumb, 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 dumb. I do think that it's a good idea to entice people with a lower price with ads. I don't have a problem with that aspect, but much like Comcast's reboot of G4 TV, I think Netflix is about a decade late for the prom on this one. Uh, Hulu already figured this out. Hell, Peacock already figured this out, and in a better way. Peacock's with ads platform... Uh, Peacock has, like, three tiers, I'm pretty sure. One is free, with, you know, a good portion of their library locked behind a paywall, and there are ads, a lot of them. There's Premium Peacock, which is still with ads, but it's only $5 a month, and the whole library is available. And then there's, I think, a, a premier tier where there's no ads and it costs, you know, more, like... 10 or 15 bucks or something like that. So congratulations, Netflix. You just figured out what Peacock has been doing to be the number, like, seven streamer of all time. Uh, be and because of their ex the existing price model at Netflix can already best be described as fuck you, pay me, since they put a premium on things like HD and 4K video quality, the ability to download content for offline viewing, the number of devices that can stream at the same time. Honestly, this seems like something literally no one is going to bite on to me. Anyway, last bit of TV news, mostly because we've covered the community movie that's happening. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've lovingly mentioned that. Uh, I did see this piece of news, and I smiled. Joel McHale, 
outside of coming back as uh, Jeff Winger for the Community movie, is also returning to network sitcom world on Fox. He will star and produce a show called Animal Control, which is a workplace comedy about, well, a city's animal control department. It'll be a, you know, your typical single camera, probably mockumentary style uh, workplace comedy. And Mikhail will play Frank, a former cop who was fired for trying to expose corruption within his police department. So, uh, yeah, now he'll have fun weekly hijinks dealing with eccentric animal emergencies and eccentric people, I'd imagine. Uh, I'm going to give it a I'm going to give it a shot. Honestly, I'm a bit of a sucker for workplace comedies. This is where I out myself as being a basic bitch. I liked The Office. I liked Superstore. I liked Brooklyn Nine-Nine. One of my three favorite shows airing right now is Hulu's Reboot. I've talked about it extensively on here. Uh, It's a workplace comedy brilliantly set on the back lot of a Hulu TV show. I think that's fun. So, yeah, I hope Animal Control works out. It's got a straight-to-series order. Sounds like it might be a mid-season replacement, possibly, or probably more, more than likely it's in development for next fall. Uh, no other casting decisions, no real big uh, names attached to it, but I like that Mikhail is going to be on television again. I like the guy, and I like what he does on shows, and I don't mind the idea of a show glorifying animal control while we're at it. There's a public service job that no one wants and nobody honors, it, but it's absolutely necessary. Hey, if, if they're looking for writers on animal control, I have a tight five that I've been working on about how we stopped using the phrase dog catcher and about how insane the phrase couldn't get elected dog catcher really is. <laughs> my dog really wants to eat. So that is it for me, my fine friends. Uh, thanks for hanging out and tuning in to this week's media sandwich. As always, don't forget to subscribe to the show and write us a nice little review. So so that I know how I did this week. And hey, check out blog posts at www.media-sandwich.com, like the aforementioned uh, Halloween Ends review that I wrote. And you can email news tips or anything else you want to talk about to mediasandwichshow at gmail.com or on Twitter at media underscore sandwich. Talk to me. I'm lonely. Uh, Because I'm in the house all by myself and I'm stuck in my chair. I can't move. Uh, Until I talk to you next week from the chair, I've been Kyle Martinak and I'm going to go get a sandwich.